everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Carrie Parker, and we just came off of Thanksgiving. I hope everybody had a great time virtually meeting with their distant relatives and uh, stayed safe. Uh, I'm afraid that a lot of us in America have not done that, and we'll find out in a week or two. But as I've been beating that drum with you guys for weeks, hopefully at least this audience stayed safe. Uh, we got a big, big show for you today. I've got a lot of stuff to cover. There's a lot of news to cover. And then uh, this week's tip of the week will be many, many tips, actually. I, we are going to go over the highlights of my best and worst gift guide for 2020. Those of you who are longtime listeners or subscribers to the newsletter will know that this is something I've been doing every year for the last uh, three years or so, four years. And the idea being that there's all sorts of gift guides out there, but very few of them will focus on security and privacy. So a lot of the stuff I'll have is actually more of general information, but I've got some very specific ideas as well. So tune in uh, toward the end of the show for that for sure. There's a lot of news to cover. Uh, just in the past few weeks, Spotify has been hacked. I'll talk about how that happened and what you should do. Uh, Google is testing end-to-end -end encryption for its Android messages. That's a good thing. There's an IoT security bill sitting on the president's desk, which hopefully will get signed. That will be a welcome change. I'm going to talk to you a little about a story from Texas about how 27 million people's driver's license records were stolen and uh, and how they got stolen is is telling. And then I've got a couple of disturbing stories about the, the U.S. government and various agencies that have tapped into third-party location data to basically sidestep the Constitution. Um, so i uh, got a couple stories, unfortunately, to tell you about that. A couple things in Apple news. They've reduced their commissions for the vast majority of their developers to 15%. This is a follow-on to the whole Fortnite epic struggle, uh, which we talked about with Cory Doctorow. I'll give you a brief update on that. And then, as promised, there was kind of a, well, there was a definite brouhaha over some changes that Apple made in Big Sur in their latest version of their operating system. I created a rather lengthy blog article about it and a newsletter about it. So uh, I do have some updates on that. I promised I would go through it and I'm going to talk about that a little bit today as well. And lastly, I'd like to encourage everybody to install and enable the COVID-19 tracking applications. And I will briefly explain why they actually do protect your privacy. It's pretty, it's pretty ingenious actually, but it only works if we all do it, or at least a lot of us do it. So I'll tell you a little bit about uh, how to do that. And then we'll get into our tips of the week, my annual guide to the best and worst gifts for the year 2020. And one more thing before we get to the news, be sure to stay all the way to the end of the program today. I've got all the details coming up for the big 200th podcast episode. Uh, got some fun stuff to share with you there, so be sure you check that out at the end, um, including some contests and giveaways. So you're going to want to listen to that. But we've got a lot to get to today, so let's get on it. All right, first off, Spotify was hacked recently. Um, many thousands of users were probably affected. But uh, let me let me just read a little bit from this article from Lifehacker, because it's basically what to do if you were affected or actually, honestly, all of you on Spotify probably should listen to this. So uh, again, from Lifehacker, it says, thousands of Spotify users just learned the hard way why you shouldn't reuse passwords. Cybersecurity company VPN Mentor has discovered an improperly secured database containing email addresses, passwords, account names, and other personal information for thousands of Spotify accounts. Hackers compiled this data with the help of other leaks or via credential stuffing rather than directly attacking Spotify itself. 
This mining operation nevertheless allowed them to successfully break into over 300,000 accounts. In response to the leak, Spotify issued forced password resets to the 300,000 affected accounts back in July, but not everybody followed through. If you haven't signed into Spotify in a while, it's probably worth updating your password right now. So is turning on two-factor authentication and installing an encrypted password manager. Don't assume you're safe if Spotify hasn't made you reset your password yet, however. According to VPN Mentor, the database is still actively being used by hackers, so further attacks are possible. There are likely a lot more Spotify users who use the same email, username, and password on multiple apps or websites, and even more who use easily accessible information as their passwords, stuff like their street address, name, birth date, etc. Those details can also be compromised by data leaks or with a little bit of social engineering. If a hacker got in, they could take over your Spotify account for themselves and siphon off your personal information for use elsewhere. This is even more problematic for Spotify users who log in using their Facebook, Google, or Apple accounts, since they store so much more personal information and link up with dozens of other apps. Take this as a canary in the coal mine situation and update your Spotify password to something stronger. It's also important to routinely perform password checkups and to check your accounts using Have I Been Pwned? Many password managers include built-in password health checks as well. Lastly, turn on two-factor authentication. I know adding an extra login step is annoying, but it's worth it. Even unique, hard-to-guess passwords securely stored in password managers can be compromised by data leaks, and two-factor authentication can prevent and or alert you of attempted account break-ins. All right, let me quickly circle back to a couple of things that were said there. First of all, credential stuffing we've talked about before, and what that basically is is if I find... If I hack one of your accounts and I get your login, which is probably your email address uh, and your password, and I figure out what that password is because passwords are stored in uh, encrypted form. It's actually hashed. Uh, but if I, if it's a poor password and I wasn't able to guess it anyway, uh, I now have a set of valid credentials for you. And I, as a bad guy, have many tools at my disposal to just take those credentials or thousands of them that I just got for a password breach and then try many, many other websites automatically to see if those same credentials will get me in somewhere else. That's credential stuffing. Now, the Have I Been Pwned site is the one uh, run by Troy Hunt. We've had him on the show a couple times and actually hopefully we'll be getting him back on the show in uh, early next year. And that's a site that basically lets you put in your email address and it will tell you if that email address is associated with any data breaches. And as the article says, many password managers like LastPass actually have that functionality built in uh, where it will tell you if that, um, if that email address has been compromised or if that uh, website that you have an account on has been compromised and prompt you to change your password. As for the last comment there about uh, even password managers being compromised by data leaks, I'm not worried about the, comp the, the password managers themselves being compromised, really. But nevertheless, it's a valid point. What I'm really more worried about is that you pick a poor password that's guessable or crackable. Uh, which the password manager won't help you there. And at that point, two-factor authentication just gives them one more thing that they need. They basically would have to have access to your cell phone to go for that second step to still log into the account. So anyway, two-factor authentication is a really important step. All right, next up, Google's testing end-to-end -end encryption. There's a new messaging standard on the block. Uh, SMS, or short message service, has been around for decades. And it's kind of like the lowest common denominator. Like email, it's actually supported by basically every cell phone system on the planet. Now, if you have an iPhone, you're probably using uh, iMessage or Messages, which is Apple's proprietary scheme, which means that you, for, in order to use it, you have to be talking to somebody else with an iPhone. That's the blue bubble scenario. Uh, when you see those dreaded green bubbles, that means that you've defaulted down to the lowest common denominator, SMS, because you're probably talking to somebody with an Android phone. 
Well, SMS is basically being upgraded to something called Rich Communication Services, or RCS. And Android is, has adopted it and rolled it out in most places, and now they're actually layering on end-to-end -end encryption to that, which is a really good sign. So let me read uh, briefly from this article from Ars Technica. Google has begun rolling out end-to-end -end encryption for Rich Communication Service, the text messaging standard the industry giant is pushing as an alternative to SMS. Abbreviated as RCS, Rich Communication Service provides a, well, richer user experience than the ancient SMS standard. Typing indicators, presence information, location sharing, longer messages, and better media support are all key selling points. They lead to things like better quality photos and videos, chat over Wi-Fi, knowing when a message is read, sharing reactions, and better capabilities for group chats. As ours noted last year, RCS interest from carriers has been tepid, so Google has been rolling it out with limited support. Google said on Thursday that it has now completed its worldwide rollout of RCS and is moving to a new phase, end-to-end -end encryption. Interest in end-to-end -end encryption has mushroomed over the past decade, particularly with revelations from Edward Snowden of indiscriminate spying of electronic communications by the NSA. End-to-end -end encryption is the antidote to such snooping. It uses strong cryptography to encrypt messages with a key that's unique to each user. Because the key is in sole possession of each user, end-to-end -end encryption prevents any of everyone else, including the app maker, ISP or carrier, and three-letter agencies, from reading a message. Messaging apps that currently provide end-to-end -end encryption include Signal, WhatsApp, and iMessage, to name just three, though those are the most popular. Now Google wants to join the club. For now, end-to-end -end encryption will be available only to people using the beta version of the Android Messages app. And even then, end-to-end -end encryption will only work for one-to-one -one messages between people using the Google app, and both senders and receivers will have to turn on chat features. The rollout will continue into the next year. Google has provided technical details here, and there's a link to a PDF that uh, you can look up online if you're really interested. Among other things, the technical paper reveals that the end-to-end -end encrypted messages will be generated using the Signal protocol. All right, so it goes on, but um, I'll stop there. So end-to-end -end encryption really is super private as long as you, one of the ends in that end-to-end, -end, generates and holds the keys. Now, a lot of these apps will do it for you in the background, so you're still trusting the app to do this. But if this is done properly and uh, Google doesn't actually have access to that key, then it's correct. Google will not be able to read your messages either or anybody else except for the, the person you sent that message to. Now, of course, you know that person or that person's phone could be compromised and they could be read that way. But generally speaking, you're, we're, we're trying to work against mass surveillance here. Also, it does mention using the Signal protocol. Signal is the messaging app I really recommend for everybody. It works on all devices, Mac, Windows, Android, iPhone, and it's really the gold standard. Um, WhatsApp actually uses this protocol under the covers, though it doesn't do a good, as good a job of it because it's owned by Facebook, and Facebook has all sorts of weird hooks in there that are probably still mining your data. So this is something that Google is layering on top of RCS, um, and that sort of makes it a little more proprietary and... So far, we really haven't heard much from Apple on this because they already have their own end-to-end -end encryption messaging system. Now, it is true that Apple holds the keys in that case, which I hopefully they will change at some point. But again, if you just want to be sure, just download the Signal app and use that instead. All right, next up, quick, uh, quick note here. There's an IoT or Internet of Things security bill that has just been passed and is sitting on the president's desk. That's a really good thing. Let me uh, just read a couple notes here from ThreatPost. Security experts are applauding the recent stamp of approval by the U.S. Senate on a groundbreaking Internet of Things or IoT security regulatory effort. The IoT Cybersecurity Improvement Act, 
which was led in bipartisan sponsorship by Representatives Will Hurd, uh, Republican of Texas, and Robin Kelly, Democrat of Illinois, would require the federal procurement and use of IoT devices to conform to basic security requirements. The act was unanimously passed by the House in September and by the Senate earlier this week. And this has been last week or the week before. The next step is for it to be sent to the president to be signed into law, and it's waiting there now. Security stalwarts praised the bill's alignment with existing standards and best practices, as well as its meaning for IoT devices, which have long been plagued by security and privacy issues. The IoT Cybersecurity Improvement Act has several different parts. First, it mandates that NIST, or the National Institute of Standards and Technology, must issue standard-based guidelines for the minimum security of IoT devices that are owned by the federal government. The Office of Management and Budget, OMB, must also implement requirements for federal civilian agencies to have information security policies that are consistent with these NIST guidelines. Under the law, federal agencies must also implement a vulnerability disclosure policy for IoT devices, and they cannot produce devices that don't meet the security guidelines. All right, it goes on from that, but this is a, this is a really good thing. Uh, even though this only applies to uh, things that the government procures or creates, this basically forces these manufacturers to to do these things. And if they're going to do it for the government, they're probably going to do it for everybody. So we should all benefit from this. So let's just hope that it gets signed into law. Okay, next up, this is a story from Texas. And as such, it was written up in the Dallas, uh, Dallas Morning News by a consumer advocate column called The Watchdog. Uh, so there's a lot of references to being a Texan or being living in Texas. So you're going to have to kind of go with that while I read this article. This article is also a little bit long, but it's got some really good points in it, so I want to cover it. So anyway, with those caveats, let's uh, dive into this article. It says, you've been hacked. We've all been hacked. No one else has said it, but the watchdog will. This is likely the largest and one of the most significant data breaches ever to hit Texans. About 27.7 million Texas driver's license holders are affected. If you haven't heard about this, that's part of the problem. It's almost like no one wants you to know. Why 27.7 million affected licenses when Texas's total population is around 28 million? Because the number includes former state residents and dead people who were issued licenses before February 2019. So it includes just about everybody who held a Texas license going back an unknown amount of years. It doesn't include children. Yes, the information here is already available on paid data sites such as publicdata.com, although that site is not always current. But there you have to look up each individual. With this breach, all the information is already bundled and in one place. What do the crooks have? Your license information, name, address, and driver's license number, the color, model, year, and the VIN of your vehicle, and the lender to whom you make car payments. The culprit here is a company you probably never heard of, Vertifor of Denver, which, like many companies, buys data from state governments. Vertifor works with the insurance industry to concoct ratings that help agents, brokers, and others. And this is from a Vertifor news release. It says, quote, As a result of human error, three data files were inadvertently stored in an unsecured external storage service that appears to have been accessed without authorization, unquote. That's a fancy PR way of saying that they got hacked. All right, uh, back to the article. Someone found the information and grabbed the files before Vertifor realized it, the company says. The FBI and state law enforcement are investigating. It appears to the watchdog that although this data breach began in March and continued to August, our Texas Department of Motor Vehicles, which stores vehicle information, and the Texas Department of Public Safety, which handles licenses, probably didn't know about the hack until recently because their own databases weren't compromised. How do I know that? The answer is revealing. First, 
Initial word of this giant breach didn't come from authorities or from the company. It came from a couple of watchdog readers who got alerts from their Experian Identity Protection Service that their driver's license information was available on the dark web. They apparently knew about this before state officials and local police departments did. That's embarrassing. After hearing from the two readers, I contacted DMV and DPS on October 1st and asked if they knew about it. DMV sent me to DPS, which reported back that its databases were not compromised. I told the two readers and published the information that there was no hack. But there was. DMV later told me it learned about the breach in mid-October. DPS said it was checking when it first learned, but DPS didn't tell me. These two readers were like canaries in the coal mine, warning ahead of time that there is a leak, either in a mine or in this case an all-encompassing data breach. Hats off to Experian for catching this first. First, some good news. Here's what was not taken. Your signature on your driver's license, photograph, audit number, eye color, gender, or height information. No social security numbers or other financial account information were taken. The culprit company said in a statement, quote, We are also not aware of any way this information could be used to commit fraud, unquote. Here I must educate Vertifor on how this thievery works. If I'm a crook, I can send you a letter or email pretending to be from your lending institution, identifying the correct vehicle you own and asking you to send your payment to a different address. Or possibly the thieves could offer you a special rate on a loan and ask you to click on a malicious web address or confuse you enough so you send them money. There's a whole lot of ways to do this. A new state law requires that companies must notify authorities and consumers within 60 days of a data breach. So that's not much help here either. Nobody has officially notified you or me about this yet. So what can you do? First, note that experience was the first alert here. My identity theft service has yet to inform me. Second, keep an eye on your credit report, which you can get free. Go only to www.annualcreditreport.com. Third, Vertifor is offering us one year of free credit reporting and identity restoration services. You can check in with Vertifor at, and then it gives a phone number on their website. If you're in Texas and you want to know this, uh, just Google for uh, Vertifor. V-E-R-T-A-F-O-R-E. And fourth, put a fraud alert on your credit accounts. All right, so these are all kind of good general things to do if you think you might be, a, uh, might be a victim of identity theft. As far as Experian being good, I don't know. I've actually, when I worked at Cisco, they actually gave me that service for free, and I did appreciate that. Whether they're truly better than others, uh, other services like that, I'm not sure. And of course, as we know, Experian was the victim of a massive, massive data breach years ago. So I hate to give them money for anything, honestly. As for the annualcreditreport.com, uh, there are so many quote-unquote free credit reports outside. Don't just Google it because it's going to give you tons of them. And most of them aren't really free. They'll try to lure you in and then they'll find some way to charge you money or nothing else. They'll just get your information and uh, data mine you. So you definitely want to go to the official site, which is annualcreditreport.com. Honestly, since this is a government-mandated thing, I really wish they would do a .gov address, which would which would be a lot harder for bad guys to uh, impersonate. The .gov would definitely stand out in that case. But if you do go to, uh, I think it's the FTC.gov site, and search for annual credit report, that will point you to the proper one. Uh, what I do with that, since there's three main agencies, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion, and as I say that, I remember that it was actually Equifax that had the big data breach, not Experian. So, correction there. But what I do is I actually set up reminders for myself to go to that site and I get each of those, but I get them staggered by four months. So like in January, I'll get one in May, I'll get another and in September, I'll get the last one. And I'll just keep rotating that way and getting my one free one per year, but I spread them out so that um, I kind of get them throughout the year. As for the fraud alert, personally, I put a credit freeze on my accounts. I don't get new credit very often. 
if you do, then that could be annoying. Or if you're applying for jobs, often they, they will access your credit report for that as well. But if you really don't need to have constant access to your credit by external third parties to who you don't already have a relationship with, uh, I would recommend doing a freeze instead of a fraud alert. It's free everywhere now. It doesn't cost any money. And they've gotten to the point where it's pretty easy to do a quick thaw if you need to get a new credit card or apply for a loan. You can call up and do a temporary thaw, which will unfreeze it just temporarily, and then you tell it when to freeze it again, and it'll, it'll go back automatically. Okay, so speaking of the government, the U.S. government, a couple really disturbing stories here and truly disappointing um, about how basically our government agencies, knowing that they can't get this information through regular <laughs> government means, have gone to third parties, civilian companies, to uh, to get this information and sidestepped the Fourth Amendment, basically. So that is that is a hole that we need to plug. But uh, let me read uh, two articles here. The first one is about the IRS, and the second one is even more disturbing about the U.S. military using this abroad. So first, both of these articles are from Vice or Motherboard. I think, I don't know which owns which, but they're related. Um, and I've cut them down a little bit to make them a little bit shorter. But here we go. First one. The IRS was able to query a database of location data quietly harvested from ordinary smartphone apps over 10,000 times, according to a copy of a contract between the IRS and the data provider obtained by Motherboard. The document provides more insight into what exactly the IRS wanted to do with the tool purchased from Ventel, a government contractor that sells client access to a database of smartphone movements. The inspector general is currently investigating the IRS for using the data without a warrant to track the locations of Americans. And this is a quote from Senator Ron Wyden, who is uh, often at the forefront of these privacy issues. He says, quote, This contract makes clear that the IRS intended to use Ventel's spying tool to identify specific smartphone users using data collected by apps and sold onwards to shady data brokers. The IRS would have needed a warrant to obtain this kind of sensitive information from AT&T or Google, unquote. Ventel sources its location data from gaming, weather, and other innocuous-looking apps. An aide for the office of Senator Ron Wyden, whose office has been investigating the location data industry, previously told Motherboard that officials from Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, which has also purchased Ventel products, said they believe Ventel also obtains location information from the real-time bidding that occurs when advertisers push their adverts into users' browsing sessions. Ventel then packages that data into a user interface and sells access to government agencies. A former Ventel worker previously told Motherboard that customers can use the product to search a specific area to see which devices were there or follow a particular device across time. Ventel provides its own pseudonymous ID to each device, but the former worker said users could try to identify specific people. The new documents say that the IRS's purchase of an annual Ventel subscription granted the agency 12,000 queries of the dataset per year. After being asked to do so by Senator Elizabeth Warren and Wyden, the body tasked with oversight of the IRS said it was launching an investigation and looking in particular at what legal basis the IRS followed to use the data. In 2018, the Supreme Court ruled in Carpenter v. United States that the collection of significant amounts of historical phone location data is considered a search under the Fourth Amendment and so requires a warrant to obtain. And this is a quote from Elizabeth Warren. She says, quote, I'm glad that the Inspector General agreed to our request to investigate this potential unconstitutional abuse of power by the IRS and its purchase of people's mobile location history from a shady data broker, and potentially others, without a warrant. The IRS is not above the law, and we must ensure that people and their rights under the Fourth Amendment are protected, unquote. 
CBP, the Customs and Border Protection Agency, for its part, has refused to tell Congress the legal argument it followed that allowed the agencies to track Americans without a warrant. And one final comment from Senator Rodden Wyden. He says, quote, The only reason the IRS went to Ventel instead was to buy their way around the Fourth Amendment. I'll be introducing legislation in the next few weeks to close this loophole and ensure that Americans' rights are protected, unquote. All right, that's story number one. Here is story number two, also from Vice and Motherboard. The U.S. military is buying the granular movement data of people around the world, harvested from innocuous-seeming apps Motherboard has learned. The most popular app among a group that Motherboard analyzed connected to this sort of data sale is a Muslim prayer and Quran app that has more than 98 million downloads worldwide. Others include a Muslim dating app, a popular Craigslist app, an app for following storms, and a level app that can be used to help, for example, install shelves in a bedroom. Through public records, interviews with developers, and technical analysis, Motherboard uncovered two separate parallel data streams that the U.S. military uses or has used to obtain location data. One relies on a company called Babel Street, which creates a product called Locate X. U.S. Special Operations Command, a branch of military tasked with counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, and special reconnaissance, bought access to Locate X to assist on overseas special forces operations. The other stream is through a company called X-Mode, which obtains location data directly from apps, then sells that data to contractors, and by extension, the military. The news highlights the opaque location data industry and the fact that the U.S. military, which has infamously used location data to target drone strikes, is purchasing access to sensitive data. Many of the users of apps involved in the data supply chain are Muslim, which is notable considering that the United States has waged a decades-long war on predominantly Muslim terror groups in the Middle East, and hundreds of thousands of civilians have died during military intervention in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Motherboard does not know of any specific operations in which this type of app-based location data has been used by the U.S. military. Some app developers Motherboard spoke to were not aware who their user's location data ends up with, and even if a user examines an app's privacy policy, they may not ultimately realize how many different industries, companies, and government agencies are buying some of their most sensitive data. U.S. law enforcement purchase of such information has raised questions from authorities buying their way to location data that ordinarily require a warrant to access. But the U.S. Special Operations contract and additional reporting is the first evidence that U.S. location data purchases have extended from law enforcement to military agencies. Okay, so I get that this is controversial and I get how you can argue that these agencies are just trying to keep us safe. However, I would argue that there's already lots of legal constitutional ways for them to do that. And at the end of the day, the real issue here is that all of this data is allowed to be collected in the first place. We absolutely need privacy regulation in this country because things have just gone off the rails. So I will just leave it at that for now. I know I've beat this horse many times. So let's move on to our next story. So we had a long talk with Cory Doctorow about the epic Apple battle. And Epic is the name of the company, the company, the gaming company that makes the very popular game Fortnite and how they had a real dust up over the summer because Epic didn't want to pay Apple's 30% cut anymore, which, you know, who would, right? Uh, But the thing is that everybody does it and it's not just Apple, it's Google, it's other companies as well. This whole 30% software thing, uh, you know, for operating the store, has been pretty common. So anyway, we debated that and whether or not that was good or bad. And of course, Corey had some very interesting points about how this affects the market and why it turns Apple into both a monopoly and a monopsony. 
So if, if you're interested in that discussion, go back a few episodes and check out that one. But Apple has just responded in a way to this, not directly, but it was very savvy. Uh, let, me, let me read the article and then I'll talk about it. This is from TechCrunch. Apple this week announced a major shakeup to its App Store commission rate. The company, as of January 1st, 2021, will only charge App Store developers 15% on paid apps and in-app purchases if their business has not exceeded $1 million in proceeds during 2020 for all of their apps combined. Qualification for the new App Store Small Business Program, as it's called, will be reassessed revenues on an annual basis going forward. The changes arrive at a time when Apple has been under increased regulatory scrutiny over how its App Store operates, which includes antitrust investigations in the U.S. and the EU. It has also waged war with developers throughout the year over in-app purchases, leading the company to revise its already complex rules even further and spell out how and when it gets to charge its so-called Apple tax. And it's in the middle of a nasty legal battle with Fortnite maker Epic Games, who doesn't want to be forced to use Apple Payments or even, necessarily, the App Store. The commission changes may help silence some disgruntled voices from the wider app development community, while giving Apple a way to show regulators that it's enabling fair competition. However, several of Apple's largest and harshest critics reacted negatively to the news. The advocacy group, the Coalition for App Fairness, which includes Epic, Basecamp, Deezer, Match Group, Spotify, and many others, said, quote, Developers want a level playing field from Apple, not a symbolic gesture, unquote. They argued that Apple still owns the customer relationship, the threshold of $1 million is arbitrary, and they said that the majority of developers who, quote, generate livable revenue, quote, won't benefit. Match, Spotify, and Epic separately echoed these sentiments in statements of their own. Apple, though, has claimed the change would benefit the vast majority of the App Store development community. Today, its App Store hosts 1.8 million apps that reach more than 1.5 billion Apple devices. So this is this was a very savvy move by Apple. I am sure that the money they make on the long tail, which is like very small developers whose apps don't pull in a lot of money, uh, will not hurt them by cutting that cutting their commission rate from 30 to 15 percent. It's the billion-dollar companies like Fortnite or like like Epic, where they probably make the most uh, of their money off this, and then do make quite a bit of money off the App Store. Now, again, Apple's not alone in doing this, uh, but what is different about Apple compared to, say, Android with Google and the Google Play Store is that on an Android phone, you can bypass Google Play. You can go to the security settings and, and turn off the thing that basically forces all apps to come from Google Play Store, and then you can buy your apps from anywhere. And while I think that that's probably a poor security decision, I think Apple is going to have to somehow allow that. But in the meantime, basically, they, they, they made a whole lot of developers happy and made them a lot less likely to side with, uh, you know, Epic and Spotify in this crusade to allow Apple to have them run their own stores. All right, one more Apple story. And this was a big one. This had... Uh, this raised a lot of privacy concerns, and I wrote a really long blog article about this, a newsletter article, and then I followed up with a blog article. So if you got the newsletter, by the way, um, go to the blog because uh, there has been some updates. I'm keeping that uh, article updated on firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. It's the one labeled a big surprise, as in Big Sur, uh, Apple's new Mac operating system. And because there's so much information there, I'm, I'm not going to cover it all here. Uh, I just want to read a little bit from this article from The Verge, which I think summarizes it pretty well without being too hyperbolic. And then I'll talk a little bit about uh, a little about this at the, at the, the backside. All right, reading from the article. 
Last week, a number of Mac users had trouble opening apps, a problem that seemed to be caused by an Apple security protocol responsible for checking that software comes from trusted sources. The slowdown prompted some to criticize Apple for collecting too much information about users' activities, criticism which the company has now responded to with promises that it will change how these security protocols work in the future. Apple announced the changes via its support pages, adding a new privacy protections section to a page entitled Safely Open Apps on Your Mac. Apple says a service known as Gatekeeper, quote, performs online checks to verify if an app contains known malware and whether the developer's signing certificate is revoked, unquote. It goes on to clarify how Apple currently uses the data and outlines new safeguards that are being introduced over the next year. Complaints about this verification process focused on a protocol known as Online Certificate Status Protocol Service, or OCSP. This security feature checks that an app's developer certificate hasn't been revoked before it's allowed to launch. The outage led to scrutiny of Apple's practices, most notably by security researcher Jeffrey Paul. In a blog post titled, Your Computer Isn't Yours, Paul claimed that this security process means Apple collects a hash of every program a Mac user runs, along with their IP address, over an unencrypted connection. The end result, wrote Paul, is that anyone using a modern version of macOS can't do it without a, quote, a log of their activity being transmitted and stored, unquote. However, not everybody agreed with Paul's analysis. One blog post by cybersecurity student, and I'm probably going to get this name wrong, Jacopo Genone, notes that the data sent to Apple's OCSP server contains information that could identify an app's developer, but not the app itself. However, Paul argues that since many developers only publish a single app, it wouldn't be hard to infer which app someone is using from information about its developer. In its updated support document, Apple makes clear that security checks it makes when authenticating software do not include a user's Apple ID or device identity. The company also says it stopped logging IP addresses associated with the developer ID certificate checks. And this is a quote from Apple. It says, quote, We have never combined data with these checks with information about Apple users or their devices. We do not use data from these checks to learn what individual users are launching or running on their devices, unquote. However, something about these complaints do seem to have registered with Apple, as the company says it's changing how it handles these checks in the future. Over the next year, the company says it will roll out a new encrypted protocol for developer ID certificate checks while adding strong protections against server failure. That is, protections against the issues that stopped apps from opening last week. Finally, users will also be given the option of opting out of these security protections altogether, a change that seems designed to appease complaints like Paul's. All right, that, there's, the more, there's more to that article, but there's also a little snippet here I want to read from the EFF, uh, and then I'll give you my take on this. So EFF says, Fixing this privacy leak while maintaining the safety of applications by checking for developer certificate revocations through OCSP is not as simple as fixing an ordinary bug in code. This is a structural bug, so it requires structural fixes. In this case, Apple faces a balancing act between user privacy and safety. A criticism can be made that they haven't given users the option to weigh the dilemma on their own and simply made the decision for them. This is a valid critique. But the inevitable response is equally valid, that users shouldn't be forced to understand a difficult topic and its underlying trade-offs simply to use their machines. Apple made a difficult choice to preserve user safety, but at the peril of their more privacy-focused users. macOS users who understand the risks and prefer privacy can take steps to block the OCSP requests. We recommend that users who do this set a reminder for themselves to restore these OCSP requests once Apple adds the ability to encrypt them. Okay, so there's there's actually a lot more to this, um, and I, I would refer you to my blog article on this at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. There's actually, I think, 
three different areas of problem here. One of them is this privacy thing where this OCSP protocol is currently not encrypted. And it does send a hash or an identifier of the app developer certificate to the app store to make sure that, you know, this this developer is still in good standing with Apple. This is not done all the time, so it's not done every time you launch, but it is currently unencrypted and, and Apple has agreed to uh, encrypt this in the future. There's actually other ways they could have done this that were better, but that may not be in the cards. If they just encrypt this, that's probably good enough. The bigger issue, I think that that Paul guy brought up in saying that you don't own your computer is basically saying that Apple has full control of whatever you run on your device because it can at any moment stop any application that you have downloaded from working. And in his mind, that means you don't own it. And Cory Doctor, I'm sure would agree. And, you know, at Apple basically has said that it's going to give you the option of turning that off. And I think that addresses that concern. Again, though, that's not coming from till next year. So if you really want to do something about it now, you've got to go through some trouble uh, by putting in some sort of a firewall, basically, that will block Apple's attempts to contact that specific security server. And in the meantime, what that means is if Apple, if the macOS can't contact it to check it, it will go ahead and let it run, which is what we call a fail open strategy. And that means that means that you're kind of flying without a net. But if that's, you know, if you'd rather make that trade-off, then that is a way to do that. But the other thing that this article doesn't talk about that I think is actually the most troubling for me is that it became obvious in Big Sur that Apple has carved out an exception for their own special operating system code and probably some of their special Apple apps that bypasses the operating system's networking code that would enable VPNs and firewalls. Let me let me phrase that a different way. Um, when you put a firewall on your machine, and there is a software firewall that comes with uh, macOS, normally that's to keep malicious requests from coming into your machine unsolicited. But with certain firewall applications, I I tend to refer to them as reverse firewalls because to me it it goes the other way. That blocks connections leaving your computer, which basically means you're worried that there's some piece of software running on your computer that you don't trust that is talking to somebody you don't want it to talk to. And there's a couple programs. There's one called Little Snitch, which you can pay for, which I don't, actually, I'm not even sure that's support anymore. And then there's another one from Patrick Wardle called Lulu, L-U-L-U, which is free and open source. And that basically lets you block any outbound connections from your computer that you don't approve of, which could be really annoying to try to do. I mean, you can do it once and forever allow it to happen. So it's only a, you know, once you approve all the ones you care about, it, it'll die down a little bit, but it, that's that's for somebody who's truly privacy paranoid. I don't have the setup, though. I actually may play with it just so I understand a little bit better. And then there's, you know, VPNs. When you want to route all of your network traffic through a VPN so that your ISP and anybody between, really between you and the VPN server at least, can't see what you're doing. Apple in Big Sur has put carve-outs in their operating system for their own software that allows them to bypass your VPN and vi- bypass the firewall. That, I think, is a problem. And I think Apple needs to make that very transparent that they're doing that and give you give you the option to not do that. Personally, again, this is this trade-off between security and privacy that Apple has to make, and they don't want to overburden most of their users who probably don't care. And so the, the, the default they take is the one they think is for more security and less privacy, 
which aren't always trade-offs, but in this case they are. So anyway, I hope that Apple gives us the option to turn that off as well. And I've done a little more uh, studying on this, and it does sound like that it depends on how you build the VPN. Uh, so not all VPNs will suffer from this problem, but if not implemented correctly or using uh, the proper low-level operating system calls, this could mean that some of your traffic, some of your network traffic is not being routed through your VPN, which most people wouldn't get. I mean, when you set up a VPN, it's supposed to be everything that comes and goes from your computer is supposed to go through that VPN tunnel. Um, and it's not obvious that uh, with Big Sur in particular, there are certain Apple processes and applications uh, and functions that can bypass that. So I'll keep you posted on that. And if that changes, I will let you know. By the way, the, the way around that is to put a, use a firewall and VPN service that does not run on your Mac. Uh, this would require some sort of external piece of hardware. Uh, well, the way most people do that at home is they would uh, set this up on their Wi-Fi router. Many modern uh, brand name Wi-Fi routers actually have the capability of, uh, of being a VPN client, which basically means that if you set that up on your router, every single device in your home will go through a VPN connection, including your Macintosh computer. And you could set up the firewall such that it blocks outgoing connections to, let's say, Apple's OCSP server. And since it's running outside of the Mac operating system, there's nothing that the Mac can do to avoid that. All right, one last little plea here before I get to my best and worst gift guide for 2020, and that is COVID exposure notifications. We talked about this a while ago, and I don't want to get into this too much. There's a, a little snippet here I'm going to read from the Washington Post about it. And then I'll, again, I'll say a little commentary at the end. It says, and this is from Jeffrey Fowler, who we know and love at Washington Post. It says, here's a phone alert you wouldn't want to miss. You have likely been exposed. The coronavirus surge is upon us, and your phone might be able to help. About 100 million Americans now have the ability to get pop-up notifications from local health authorities when they've personally spent time near someone who later tested positive for the coronavirus. But exposure notifications only work if you and the people around you turn them on. Yes, you. There's early evidence this anonymous smartphone technology works, but so far isn't helping very many Americans. In August, I, and this is Jeffrey Fowler, I wrote about the first of these state-sponsored alerts, Virginia's COVID-wise app. In the three months since, only 488 people have used the state's app to send alerts about a positive diagnosis to others. The alerts use software built by Apple and Google into iPhones and Android devices to detect when people or the phones they're holding get into close contact with each other. That might sound like a privacy invasion, but they figured out how to track encounters between people in a way that's anonymous and doesn't store your location by using the Bluetooth wireless technology in phones. Exposure alerts worked for the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam. He and the first lady tested positive for the coronavirus in September, and because they had it working on their phones, staff members exposed to them got notified. And they're picking up steam. In its first few weeks, Colorado's system was activated by a million residents or 17% of its population. So why aren't our phones a big part of America's coronavirus response? For starters, each state's local health department has to develop and operate its own system, though they've recently begun making them work across borders. Privacy concerns around similar-sounding but actually very different contact tracing apps have needlessly scared people away. And frankly, Apple and Google buried the settings and apps you'll need, bungling what could have been the year's most helpful tech launch. You don't have much to lose, so you might as well turn exposure alerts on. It takes less than five minutes to set up, and this guide will help. Now, I'll put a link to this guide in the show notes so that you can find that. Uh, you could probably just go to the Washington Post and search for it as well. It might be quicker. And frankly, there's a lot of other really great details in this article, like why it's not a privacy problem. 
And I talked about this a long time ago and went through it in detail. But uh, the short summary is that Apple and Google got together and put technology into their phone operating systems, that's Android and iOS, that does this really clever technique of uh, dropping these anonymous and constantly ch changing tokens into little drop boxes of all the phones that are nearby you for a certain amount of time. And what that basically allows to happen is if you eventually find out that you've been infected, uh, you can, through this app, send a notification up to the cloud and then along with a list of all the tokens that you noticed near you for the last, let's say, 14 days or whatever the whatever the length of time is of which you might be contagious, and then notify all the people that own those tokens in an anonymous way that they have been near somebody who has tested positive. So anyway, things are really about to get bad here. I know they are. Uh, now would be a really, really good time to turn this on and, and help all your friends and family do the same. The more people that do it, the better. Unfortunately, not every state has produced an app uh, but this article has links to all the ones that do, and it will be updated as more states uh, bring their apps online. So check out that article. Again, I'll put the link in the show notes, and or you could just go straight to the Washington Post and look for the article uh, from Jeffrey Fowler. All right, now the moment you've all been waiting for, at least since last year, it is time for my tip or tips, in this case, of the week. And it's my best and worst gift guide for 2020. And of course, from my perspective on this show, we're talking about best and worst in terms of security and privacy. Now, I'm going to walk through a lot of it here today, but there's much, much more detail and lots of handy links. Uh, if you go to the actual article itself on firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, you'll see it right near the top. It'll be the best and worst gifts for 2020. If you just search for worst, I think you'll find all the articles, including this one. Uh, but I am going to walk through at a high level most of the stuff I talk about there. And let's start with the worst. These are the things that you should avoid. Um, and I'll talk about some generalities first. Uh, so first of all, uh, I would avoid smart devices from Google, Amazon, or Facebook. <laughs> now I realize that covers a lot of ground. So let's like just let's run through this. Google Google owns Nest and Fitbit. Amazon owns Ring doorbells, Blink webcams, Eero mesh Wi-Fi routers. Facebook owns Oculus headsets and their own portal devices. And if that's not bad enough, all three of these companies have digital assistants like uh, the A-Word, Echo's product, Google's similar assistant, and Facebook, I think, even has one too. And all three of these companies have been working hard with third parties to, uh, to embed that same technology in those things as well. And more than likely, those same apps are also collecting data on you. All of these companies, even Amazon at this point, is ba are basically advertising companies. They want to recommend products to you. They want to get ads in front of you and to hyper-target those they need to know or they feel that they need to know as much about you as possible. Now, I realize that's going to be really hard to avoid these, so <laughs> um, I'm just making you aware. Uh, and when we get to the best part of this list, uh, there will be some alternatives that I can recommend. Next up, and this is a perennial naughty list favorite, DNA analysis kits. And most of these are you know, they're from Ancestry.com or 23andMe or MyHeritage. These are companies that are trying to help you fill out your family tree, which is cool. I, I'm a kind of an amateur genealogist myself. I've got a family history going uh, for both sides of my family that I've really enjoyed doing. And so what they want to do if you send this in is they will use your DNA to try to match you up against other people in its system. And if you're really lucky, uh, you might get most of your family tree filled out quickly for you because of some shared relative you've got that you can tap into. So I get it. That's <laughs> As a concept, that's a cool thing. However, you've got to be prepared for a few different downsides to this. First of all, it could reveal stuff that was not meant to be revealed. 
uh, there's been several stories about how this has revealed infidelity, for example, where uh, someone believed they knew who their father was, and it turns out they didn't. It can also be used, perhaps, to link up foster ch children with their parents, which you can think of as a good thing, but sometimes those parents are, don't want to be found, and possibly for a very good reason. Another kind of creepy aspect of this is this information has been used by law enforcement because some of these uh, DNA databases have made their stuff public. In particular, I think it's GEDCOM, where law enforcement could take DNA samples that they have at crime scenes and try to find the victim, even if the victim's DNA is not in the system, because you share DNA with your relatives. Uh, they did this with the Golden State Killer. The other creepy thing, for me, the more likely and maybe more troubling thing is that another group of companies that would really like to get their hands on the information about you is insurance companies, health insurance companies, life insurance companies, because that DNA says a lot about you. And it might, it might affect your, your rates of insurance. If they know that you have cancer in your family or from your DNA, they know that you're more prone to certain costly illnesses or to die young. And of course your DNA is you. I mean, when you're talking about identity and personal information, nothing is more personal than your DNA. There's really no way to anonymize it. I don't care what you say. It is you. And personally, I wouldn't trust any for-profit company with that data, at least until we have much, much better privacy regulations and uh, regulations that have some real teeth. So anyway, as cool as that is, personally, I would totally avoid those. All right, next up, as a general category, you really want to avoid cheap or free services. And again, I'll go back to some of the same thing. You know, Google, uh, who uh, owns Android, Waze, Nest, and YouTube. Uh, Facebook, who owns WhatsApp, Instagram, Oculus, and Anovo. Uh, Yahoo owns Tumblr. I can go on for some of those. But one of the categories I want to call in particular are free VPN services. Uh, VPNs have gotten very popular, especially with some of us working from home and with all the... You know, all of us, you know, starting to want to protect our privacy more from our internet service providers uh, who are definitely mining our data by, you know, monitoring our web surfing habits. And ironically, a lot, a lot of these VPN services, especially the free ones, are doing the exact same thing. Because when you use a VPN, you're basically trading your trust uh, or your mistrust of your ISP uh, into trust for the VPN provider because they kind of become your internet service provider. But if you can't trust them either, then what's the point? Some of the more popular ones include Hotspot Shield. Pardon the name, but this is the real name. It's called Hide My Ass. Onevo, which I said before was owned by Facebook. Touch VPN. Ola VPN. Uh, and even Google's getting in the, in the game now. They're going to be offering a VPN service, and they'll tell you up and down how private it is. And it costs money, so it's not, it's not really going to be free, but it's Google. 90% of their revenue is from advertising. You are not their customer, even if you're paying. You're their product. And finally, as just a general rule, really try to avoid cheap smart devices or cheap cell phones. Cheap Android phones have been known to be laced with all sorts of horrible tracking and malware and adware. That would, have, that would apply to cheap Android tablets as well. Uh, look out for cheap baby monitors and uh, you know network-based security cameras. A lot of those, for similar reasons, have horrible security built into them if they have any at all, which means they could be hacked. And, you know, you don't want a camera in your home to be hacked or a listening device, or both. There have been several creepy stories about that. And just as a rule of thumb, you know, avoid connecting anything to the internet from a brand or a company that has no reputation to protect. When you look at big companies like Apple, they've got a, they've got a huge reputation to protect. Their brand is everything, and part of their brand is privacy. So I'll get to them in a little bit, but, you know, 
companies that have, you know, that could really suffer from any sort of a brand backlash are more likely to at least fix the issues once they're brought up. Though, again, you know, Google, Facebook, these are really big companies who, <laughs> whose bread and butter is data. So that's not going to work so much for them, probably. But anyway, that, you know, following the money and looking for a, uh, buying from companies that have a name brand to protect that could be shamed potentially into fixing something uh, gives you a little more cover. And the flip side of that is, is to avoid the companies that don't meet those criteria where you don't know how they make their money. It's not obvious how they can make money by giving away free products, you know, and not having some side business, you know, side business where they sell to companies maybe and earn money that way, but they give it away for free to individuals, you know, that that's a viable business model that doesn't necessarily require them to monetize you. So unfortunately it takes some research, but I've done at least some of that here for you today. All right. So those are some kind of general ideas of things you need to avoid and then a few specific products. Uh, I would call out ring doorbell in particular. We've talked about them on, on the show before. They're really getting, really getting super creepy with their surveillance. I think I mentioned this before. They've got this trial going in Jackson, Mississippi, where the police can actually tap in directly to everybody's ring video doorbell, basically setting up this massive third-party surveillance network. Uh, I think you have to opt into that, but I mean, it's important to understand that you don't have to. If Amazon wants to, they can give that information away. Like, you know, for instance, if they come with a warrant, but in this particular case, I think they're actually setting it up so that they basically just get live feeds from everybody's video doorbell. All right, so what should you buy? Let's start off with some basic things that you could use to mitigate your risks from these devices. Uh, first of all, if this thing has a password, change it because it's almost surely going to be a well-known default password. Now, that would probably require the bad guy to be on your home network in order to exploit it, but because of the security and all of these, the poor security of IoT devices today, you can't trust all the devices in your network. And if one of them gets hacked, then they're on the inside. They've got a foothold, a beachhead. And that's when default passwords uh, on your devices can be horrible. In particular, your Wi-Fi router. And that definitely has an admin page with an admin password. So when you get your new Wi-Fi router, you definitely want to log in and configure that and change the admin password to something good. While you're in there, uh, you should disable any remote access that's enabled. Hopefully it's not. Uh, some of these routers, for some inexplicable reason offer ways for you to configure your wife your home wi-fi router from anywhere on the planet and why you'd want to do that from anywhere except inside your home i don't know some of them have this turned on by default uh, so you definitely want to turn that off there's another feature called universal plug and play or upnp that could be a security issue as well if you find that feature somewhere i would disable that also if your router supports it, or actually if any of your IoT devices support it, uh, and hopefully they will start doing this soon, especially with those new NIST guidelines, it should have a way to auto-update its own software. Software has bugs. All software has bugs. So when those bugs are found, it's critical and crucial that the fixes for those get applied as soon as they're available. And most people treat these things as appliances. They don't even think about the passwords that they might have on them or the software on them being uh, vulnerable and not updated. So for any device you buy that you connect to the internet, look for ones that come with the ability to auto-update their own software and then make sure that that feature is enabled. Another uh, cute trick uh, uh, with your IoT devices, uh, many of them really only need to talk to the internet. They don't need to talk to your computer or your smartphone directly. 
And for any of IoT devices you have that fit that description, you should put them on a separate Wi-Fi network. And you think, okay, great. That means I've got to go buy two Wi-Fi routers. No, not really, because most Wi-Fi routers today come with a guest network. So when you enable the guest network, it's basically like having two different Wi-Fi routers. Any internet traffic on the guest side cannot get to the other side, your regular home network. So what you want to do then is you want to put your computers and your smartphones and the things that you that have juicy data or things that you definitely don't want to get hacked, uh, put that on your regular Wi-Fi network, but then create the guest network and put all those other IoT devices on the guest network. And at least that way, if they get compromised, you know, they're segregated from, from the really important stuff. And by the way, use that guest network. When you've got people coming over to your house, give them the guest network password. You don't know where the devices have been. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know if they're compromised. They might not know that they're compromised. So use it like a true guest network. And when someone comes over, give them the guest network password. And finally, uh, where possible, just keep your smart devices dumb. If you're not using any of those super fancy features that require internet access, then don't give it internet access at all. I think the most common use for this uh, is smart TVs because, you know, smart TVs often come with apps built in for getting to Netflix or Amazon Prime or Apple TV, uh, HBO Max, all those kind of, you know, they have apps for that. But a lot of people don't use those apps. They use the apps that are on their streaming box, like an Apple TV or a, a Fire TV. So if you're not actually using those those apps on your TV or if if you can find a way to work around that, I would just not plug your TV into the internet at all. Don't set up the Wi-Fi connection or don't plug it into Ethernet. And by the way, these TVs are are watching us. <laughs> I know this sounds super paranoid, but they, they are. It's been proven. Roku and some of these other devices are monitoring what apps you use, when you use them, what you watch, and they're tattling on you. They're building a profile on you and selling that data. So if possible, I know it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to buy a smart device and then not use the smart features, but you know maybe it was a gift or maybe there's some redundancy there in those features. And if you're not using those features, then don't and cut off that device's access to the internet. All right, some other general advice, spend money. Spend money to buy the better products, spend money to buy a brand name, spend money to buy devices that tout their privacy and security features. As I said before, free or you know really cheap or usually not qualities that you want to look for in a product is certainly probably means they don't have stellar privacy and security. But also uh, when we, you know, as consumers pay money for security and privacy features, uh, you know, it supports companies that are doing the right things. And it also just supports, you know, a vibrant, viable market for these products and services. We want to show that we're willing to pay for this. And once it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, but once we start, you know, once the, the market is established and it's obvious that people are willing to pay for security and privacy, uh, more companies will get into it, either existing or new or new companies. So that's a good thing. Second, you know, the opposite of kind of what I said before, make sure you're choosing brand names, find companies with reputations on the, on the line, you know, and I'll, they're not perfect, but you know, when those companies fall short, you know, be vocal about your disappointment. You know, first of all, you know, if you want to be nice, you would complain to the company itself first, you know, preferably in a written form. So you've got a paper trail and that could be email as well. You know, if that fails, then take it to social media or, you know, if you think you've really been scammed, you know, go to your state's attorney general's office or whatever your consumer office is for your state. Or you could write to the federal government, go to the, uh, the, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, and you can file a complaint there. And by the way, there's links to all those things in my uh, article if you want to if you want to do those. Also, as a general rule, newer tech is better than older tech. I mean, not always, but mainly what you really want to avoid is older tech that is no longer supported, either meaning that there's no more software updates for it or that it's using really old technology that is no longer secure. 
For example, uh, really old Wi-Fi routers that are using WEP for their uh, over-the-air encryption, WEP has been cracked a long, long time ago. And the original WPA standard, uh, that's been cracked as well, so you definitely want something more modern with WPA2 or even better, WPA3. And finally, you know, do your research. If you're going to buy anything that's connected to the internet in particular, make sure you do some look up on there. If you go to my resources page on firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, there's a lot of great tools there, including some we're going to talk about next week uh, when we have our interview with Consumer Reports. But for right now, a couple of uh, particular ones you might want to look at. Uh, Mozilla's got a great website called Privacy Not Included that uh, kind of goes through specific products and does a little bit of crowdsourcing to figure out whether or not people think they're creepy or not in terms of privacy, but also has a really kind of a nice standard breakdown on the various features of the device and calls out areas where they might be problematic. You can also look at a website called Restore Privacy. They've got some really great reports on some common services like email and VPNs, and there's there's lots more. So anyway, go to go to my resources page on firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com for a lot more uh, links to some really cool reports and some tools. All right, now, the, this is probably what you're really waiting for, some actual specific examples of things that you, uh, services and products that I recommend. So first of all, password manager. Everybody needs one. We all have dozens, if not hundreds of passwords we need to remember. And every one of those passwords needs to be unique and it needs to be strong. And the only way we can do that is using a password manager because the human brain just can't do it. Password managers will also help you generate those passwords in the first place. And then they will store them for you so you don't have to remember them. Personally, I use LastPass. I've used it for many, many years, and I really enjoy it. Um, but there are some other ones that are just as good, probably. Uh, 1Password is, is one of them. It's the number one and then password. And then there's a free one called Bitwarden that is open source and is also quite good. Next up, uh, a true privacy-respecting VPN service. And you'd think with privacy right there in the name, virtual private network, you wouldn't have to worry about this, but you do, as we've talked about already. So, you know, so whenever you're in a hotel or a coffee shop on the airplane or, you know, any place with free Wi-Fi, basically, then that business is your internet service provider. And on mobile devices, your internet service provider is your mobile carrier. All of these internet service providers, the people that are providing you access to the internet can potentially see all the stuff you're doing in your web browsing. Now, most of our connections to the web now are HTTPS, which means they're encrypted, which means the actual contents can't be seen, but the metadata, you know, what site you go to, when you go there, how long you spend there, all those kind of things are still really important uh, and very personal information. And that's where a VPN would come in. There are many, many choices, uh, even many, many good choices. Personally, I like uh, ExpressVPN. It's very fast. Uh, it works on all types of devices, computers and smartphones. Uh, it's what I use, honestly, most of the time. And I think for most people, that's a great choice. Uh, there's another one that I hadn't heard of until recently called Mulvad, M-U-L-L-V-A-D, that looks interesting. Uh, that if for some reason you don't like ExpressVPN, you might want to check them out. And again, in my article, I've got a link uh, to some other ones you could look at as well. Uh, some really good reviews of, of these services, so you can pick one. Next up, uh, cloud storage. Uh, these have become more popular, you know, things like Dropbox or Google Drive or Microsoft's OneDrive or even Apple's iCloud. Uh, they're all very handy. They're great ways to either get some things off your computer or to synchronize certain files between computers. You've got, if you've got more than one computer or if you want to access files from your phone as well as from your computer, you know, these kind of services allow you to, you know, the, the files exist on each of those devices, but they're synchronized through the cloud. So if you add one in one place, it will show up in the other. If you change it in one place, it will be changed in the other and that sort of thing. Very convenient. Many of these are free or come with some of the devices you buy. Uh, and they even claim to be encrypted. And they, 
they are, but the deal is they have the keys to that encryption. So what that means effectively is that they can, at any point, if they really wanted to, either, you know, perhaps a malicious employee uh, or responding to a warrant from law enforcement can still access your quote unquote encrypted stuff. So if you really want to have truly private cloud storage, you need to be able to generate and maintain those keys yourself. Uh, it's not as hard as it sounds. Um, I've done a lot of research on this and I ended up going with sync.com, S-Y-N-C.com. It's a great service. It does cost money, um, but they will allow you to generate and control the encryption keys so that only you have access to that stuff in the cloud, which is a, a great way to go. Uh, however, if you really want to use those other services for some reason, uh, I can recommend another free open source tool for you called Cryptomator, C-R-Y-P-T-O-M-A-T-O-R. Uh, it will allow you to create encrypted folders within those cloud folder drives, within those uh, folders that in your Dropbox folder or whatever, meaning that at least for whatever's in those folders, you do have the encryption key and they don't, uh, and at least whatever's in that folder is still truly private. All right, next up, let's talk about email. Most of the email services we've all kind of used, if we didn't use the one from our internet service provider, uh, are free services like Gmail and Outlook and Yahoo. And I admit that I have all three, but I also know that I need to get away from them and I've been moving away from them. So uh, the ones I have been gravitating towards, the ones I recommend that you might look into, and they could be gifts because they do cost money, uh, is Fastmail. Uh, that's that's the, probably the one that I think is best for most people. It's very middle of the road. It's privacy respecting, but it's not over the top privacy. And what I mean by that is it's it's not itself, for example, fully end end encrypted. And so I'm sure you're already saying, wait a minute, if it's not if it's not end encrypted, then why bother? But it's still, I mean, Google and all those you know all those other companies, those free services are free because they basically can now look through all of your emails to learn more and more about you. Now, Google claims they don't use it for advertising, but I'm sorry, I, I'm not buying that. I wouldn't, and, I, and they could change that at any time. So Fastmail doesn't need to do that. Fastmail is privacy respecting. They, they will not mind your data. The other problem is also that even if you've got a fancy end-to-end encrypted service, which I'm about to recommend a couple, as soon as you email somebody who's not on that same service or are not able to handle your encrypted messages, then you're right back where you started. And so if I have super, super secure email service and I send an email to somebody on Gmail, I've already lost unless it's fully encrypted. And then there's problems with, you know, the recipient's got to figure out some way to decrypt that message. It's, it's clunky. Unfortunately, it shouldn't be, but it is. Um, so anyway, I think the, a good, a good moderate, choice for most people is something like Fastmail. And Fastmail actually comes with a lot of the things you would expect from Google. It's got a really nice calendar. It's got a really nice address book. It's even got a way to take notes and a little file storage. Though for real file storage, again, I would go with sync.com. So if you really do want to kick it up a notch, if you really do want to go full end-to-end encryption, then I have two, uh, two services I would recommend, both of which I use. Uh, one is ProtonMail. Uh, a great service, and we've actually had their CEO on our show a couple times, and I need to see if I can get him back to get an update on what things they're doing. I think they've got a calendar now, too, and they've even got a VPN. And if you're using ProtonMail and you're talking to somebody else on ProtonMail, that communication is fully end-to-end -end encrypted. And ProtonMail actually also has a really interesting feature will, which will allow you to send an encrypted message to somebody not on ProtonMail. And then they will get a link that they click, and they will need to know a password, uh, and then they will enter the password, and then they can read the email. And the other one that I've actually actually kind of been using a little bit more, it's got a funny name. It's called Tutanota, 
and that is spelled T-U-T-A-N-O-T-A. Now, supposedly where that comes from uh, is from Latin, and that's uh, two words, uh, tuta, which I guess means secure, and nota, which means message. That might be a bastardization, but that is what the, that is where that name comes from. Uh, and they also have, uh, you can use them for calendar and other things as well. So, and I, I find it's a little easier to use um, than ProtonMail, but they're, they're pretty close. But anyway, so if you want, if you really want to go kick it up a notch, uh, you'll, you can try out Tutanota uh, and ProtonMail. Uh, next up, secure messaging. And this is an easy one. Just use Signal. Now, there are a couple others that might be interesting. Uh, one, one is called Wire, and the other is called Threema. T-H-R-E-E-M-A. All of them are actually pretty good. Uh, Signal, however, I think is still the gold standard. Uh, works on all sorts of devices. It's fully open source, done by some really, really smart guys who are all about privacy, and it is fully full tilt and dead encrypted. And the Signal protocol, since it's public, has actually been used by other products. It's been used by WhatsApp. It sounds like uh, Android is going to use this for their RCS end encryption. And so that you know, maybe it could actually end up being a standard we could all agree on. That would be wonderful. So anyway, download Signal. You can use it on your Mac, on your PC, uh, uh, Android device, and iOS. The only problem is with all these things, with all these messaging programs, is that you need to get someone else to be on the same, also to have Signal for you to talk to them. That's the hard part. So anyway, if you want to, you know, give that a shot and Christmas and comes around, you might, you know, say, hey, everybody, let's try Signal. And then you get at least some of your family and friends on Signal, uh, and then maybe it can just grow from there. And finally, generically, and this won't be a surprise, uh, Apple products. Now, again, I'm an admitted Apple fanboy. I have been for decades. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, there's just no denying that Apple's one of the very few big tech companies that just don't need or want your data. They sell hardware, and they make a, <laughs> they make a lot of money doing it. So whether it's, you know, truly altruistic uh, or if it's just capitalism at work, you know, being a market differentiator for them, they have made a point of making privacy a key product feature, and they're not perfect, but they are at least trying, and they're they're pretty darn smart. They've they've made some really good progress in that area. So it's hard if you're looking for security and privacy, particularly privacy, it's hard to go wrong with an Apple product. All right, how about some specific ones? And again, the list on firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com is uh, much longer. There's more things you can find there. I just picked up a few highlights here. So, speaking of Apple products, uh, they've got a brand new thing called the HomePod Mini. Uh, which is a little uh, smart speaker. So it's like, you know, Amazon Echo and some of these other devices. The Echoes are very popular. In fact, I had some of those too, but I'm slowly replacing them with Apple products. And Apple had a HomePod for a while, but it was big, heavy, and really expensive. But their new one is a little softball-sized thing called a HomePod Mini. It's like 100 bucks, and there are some Black Friday sales that you can find to get them a little cheaper than that. But they sound really good. It comes with Siri built-in. So if you've got Apple products already and you're an Apple person, this is a very natural addition to that. And if you haven't dabbled yet in home automation, which is, you know, kind of the cool thing where you can say, hey, you know, assistant, turn on these lights or turn off these lights or I'm going to bed. You can you actually set up little macro kind of things where it does several things by using a certain shortcut. You say, I'm going to bed, so it turns off all the lights downstairs maybe. Maybe it turns your thermostat down. You know, anything you've got set up with the you know with the Apple HomeKit enabled system can be controlled through just talking to this thing. So that could be a fun start to a whole bunch of new things you could do. So anyway, Apple HomePod Mini it would be a it could be a fun gift that might start the ball rolling on some other really fun stuff. All right, next up I railed on the Ring doorbell and some of their privacy and surveillance features that I didn't like. 
So what what do you replace that with? Well, I replaced my ring with a Eufy video doorbell. That's E-U-F-Y. It's part of the Anchor brand of products. They have make some really good stuff. And they are much more private. They actually work with Apple HomeKit, so they would actually work with uh, your Apple products as part of that home automation stuff I was telling you about um, that's got a Apple uh, HomeKit secure video option. And it's all stored locally on the device instead of stored in the cloud, so only you have access to it. And you can still get to it from anywhere using your phone, but that stuff is stored on the SD card at your doorbell and not in the cloud like with Ring and not available for Eufy or anyone else to access um, without your permission. And they're really good products. I really enjoy mine. It's great for, you know, seeing when people come to your door. Uh, I've got a basement that I'm often in. So, you know, when the doorbell rings, I get a little, there's a little doorbell extension thing I've got in my basement. So when it rings upstairs, it also rings downstairs. And I can just whip out my phone and see who's there. And I can even, if I want to, I can even talk to them. I can hear them and see them. And if I want them to hear me, uh, I can turn on a little microphone button and talk back to them. And with, so not only can I, you know, see if it's worth me getting up to go to my door, you know, if it's somebody trying to sell me something, I can just blow it off. I can get these notifications from anywhere on the planet that I've got internet access. So I can actually, you know, see who's at my home when I'm not there. And I can even pretend to be there if I think I'm worried about this person being a burglar trying to case my house out. And I can also see if there's, you know, packages sitting on my front porch and uh, it would capture anybody who tried to steal those packages. So uh, it's, it's really a great, uh, a great gift with all sorts of really good uses. And just make sure you don't get the ring the ring version. Uh, I would go with the, the Eufy version. Uh, we talked a little bit about Wi-Fi routers. There's a lot of them out there. There's several good ones, but most of them are usually ranked by, well, first cost and second, you know, how fast they are or how far they reach, which, you know, those are key table stakes for any good Wi-Fi router. But um, if you care about security as well, I would look at one called Synology. S-Y-N-O-L-O-G-Y. It's a really good router in in and of itself, but it's it's also got some good security features, including the ability to auto update its own software, which is great. Um, so that's the one I use here at home. And if you're looking for a new Wi-Fi router, uh, that's one I could definitely recommend. A couple other small stocking stuffer kind of things, uh, you could get somebody a webcam cover, uh, because most of our webcams today are controlled by software, not hardware. So sure, when that little green light comes on, that should be telling you that the camera's on. But if you are able to success, successfully hack the software, you can turn that camera on without turning on the green light. That has happened. I don't know how often that is happening. I don't know if uh, I'm sure a lot of hardware makers, uh, laptop makers in particular, have you know done their best to disable that. But you know you never know. And if you just want to be absolutely sure, you can put the little sliding cover. They make these super super thin little sliding windows that you can put that will cover that over. Uh, you can buy them on Amazon and multi-packs uh, and you can put those over your, your cam and then you can slide that shut and then you can make sure that no one can go through it. Now it doesn't help the microphone in that case, uh, but it will at least cut off the camera. Uh, but if you want to go cheap, you can also just get a post-it note. Uh, keep, some, keep a little post-it note nearby and just take a post-it note and put it over that thing when you're not using it. Uh, next up, <laughs> what I love to call, what used to be called a USB condom. Now that's you know, now they call them data blockers or something like that, a little, something a little more family friendly. But the idea is USB ports have two main functions, power and data. So when you connect, you know, your phone to your computer or whatever, you can actually exchange data with it. But when you just want to charge up your phone, all you really need is the power part. Unfortunately, uh, data comes with that as well, if you're not careful. And so this is actually a thing. This is actually happening. It's actually becoming more popular. It's called juice jacking. And that is actually hacking your phone from a USB port. Now, where would that happen? 
uh, public USB ports. They're all over the place now. Uh, hotels, coffee shops, airports, airplanes, McDonald's, bookstores. I mean, really any place where you might sit around for a while uh, and people want to keep you there, they have come to offering charging ports for your phones because they know people want to top off their phones. So what do you do? So they make these little nuggets that you can buy, these quote-unquote USB condoms or, or cables that do the same thing, that basically only have the power cords. If you look inside a, a common USB connector, there's four wires, two for power, two for data. Uh, and what these things do is they just eliminate the data wires. And that's for, you know, the super cheap ones do that. That's, that's easy to do. Uh, it is, however, it's not optimal. These charging things actually do take some smarts sometimes if they want to do rapid charging, for example. So some of the more expensive cables actually have a little bit of a chip built into it that is smart enough to negotiate the power exchange, but still block all data. Uh, so if you go to the website, again, you can find, you'll find a link, but uh, PortaPow. P-O-R-T-A-P-O-W makes some good ones. You can buy, find those on Amazon for pretty cheap. Uh, and when you look that up, I'm sure they'll find some other examples you could look for as well. Uh, but those are great little stocking stuffers, especially for somebody who travels. Another fun one, if you want to get into a little uh, little project, a little computer uh, slash electronics project, is one called a pie hole. And that's spelled P-I-H-O-L-E. And that's for the Raspberry Pi, Raspberry P-I, microcomputer, I guess is what you'd call it. It's a little... It's a fun little tinkering thing that um, you could do all sorts of stuff with, uh, which I have done as well. I love these little things. They're little tiny computers. They're super cheap. Uh, you can get the super small one for like 10 bucks, uh, and you can get the more standard one for 35 bucks. And these are fully functioning computers. And what you can do with this small little box, and it's about this, you know, the, the $35 one is about as big as a credit card, though it's, you know, it's maybe three quarters of an inch high. And the $10 one is even smaller than that. Uh, but they, you know, to make these things work, of course, you've got to add a keyboard and a mouse when you want to set them up and uh, attach it to a monitor so you actually see what it's doing and you need to give it power and maybe put it in a little bit of a case. So, you know, to do it right actually costs more money. You've got to get a little kit that involves all those things. But if you get a little Raspberry Pi kit, which can cost anywhere from 50 to, I don't know, 80 bucks maybe total for all these things uh, in one package, and you'll need an SD card as well for the memory, you get this tiny little multi-purpose computer thing. And one of the things you can do with that is put some software in there called Pi-hole. And what this is, is it's a DNS sinkhole. What does that mean? So whenever DNS is the phone book for the internet, when you have, you know, amazon.com, yahoo.com, google.com, uh, those domain names, your computer needs to know the IP address, the real number address for that. And so DNS is the service that runs out in the cloud that converts those things. It converts from the domain name to an IP address. Well, since since your computer does that lookup basically every time it wants to go to a website, uh, the applications that you're running, the websites you're going to, all have these little links in them that try to go get ads, for example, or go to tracking sites, for example. Uh, and you can block all of those if you have the list of domain names you want to block and you route your DNS to this pie hole thing. It will just it will make all those domain names for the tracking and the ads unroutable meaning that the web pages, your phone, none of these devices will be able to load ads or, or do the tracking they want to do because they can't reach the servers that, that provide those things. So you can run this Pi hole software on this little Raspberry Pi, and if you make that the DNS server uh, for your home, uh, and you would do that at your Wi-Fi router, you would you configure the DNS server on your Wi-Fi router to point to this Pi hole. And there's instructions for all this, by the way, and I've got links to that in the thing. It's not as hard as it sounds. Um, then basically, every single device on your home network 
now could block ads and trackers because it's all done in one place. So anyway, that's a fun little gift, especially if you've got somebody who likes to tinker um, or uh, with little computer projects, That that's fun. And of course, I couldn't possibly finish this list. I would be remiss, criminally remiss, if I did not recommend Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. This book has got 170 tips in it, including a lot of the ones I just went over, except the book has got step-by-step instructions, complete with pictures of what you're going to see. And it also goes into a lot more depth on the, the why, why this stuff's important, and how, how this stuff actually works. And I did my utter best to avoid jargon wherever possible. I, you know, I use analogies and try to explain it in a way that anybody can pick up and understand. But it's also, uh, it's also good for people who actually do have a tech background as well. I've had friends of mine that have found nuggets of wisdom in this book that they hadn't realized either. So it's really good for just about everybody. Of course, you can get it anywhere you can buy books, uh, and then most people buy them at Amazon.com. You could also go to apress.com. And if you do, uh, if you are okay getting the ebook version of this, personally, I always like paper copies of books like this. But uh, if you want the ebook, especially if you want to pick it up cheap, uh, right now, today, Monday only, it ends at the uh, the last day of the month of November. Uh, A-Press is having a big sale on ebooks, not just mine, but all the ebooks uh, that they sell. Seven bucks, which is a really, really good deal. It's their Cyber Monday deal or Cyber Week deal or something like that. It was going on all weekend, but it ends today. Uh, the code you're going to need to do that is Cyber20AP. That's C-Y-B-E-R 2-0-A-P. It's probably right there on the site anyway, but just in case it's not, that's what you'll need. And you can get any book there for seven bucks, including, of course, mine. Uh, and if you don't, if you want to maybe try it out for seven bucks, so you see what you think. And then maybe consider giving this as Christmas gifts. Maybe someone's getting a new computer. Maybe they're getting a new smartphone. Maybe getting one of these, uh, you know, smart devices that we talked about. This book would be a great companion for that. So think about that as potentially on your Christmas list. And with that, I will end my list of the best and worst gifts. Of course, if you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, you'll see uh, the full list with a whole bunch of uh, handy links. And hopefully this will help you make your big decisions on what gifts to give everybody in 2020. All right, everybody. Thank you for hanging in. That was a long one, uh, but we're not done. We've got some good stuff to get to yet, so hang in there. Um, uh, next week, we're going to do a two-part interview with Ben Moskowitz from Consumer Reports. First time I've ever had somebody from Consumer Reports, and he's got some really cool stuff to talk about. Uh, they did a really interesting survey of people about privacy, and they're at kind of a different angle than, than other people have taken. They really were trying to figure out, you know, what how people value privacy, in particular with their products and services, because that's what Consumer Reports does, right? They They want to review these products, and they're now taking privacy and security into account in their ratings. So uh, it makes sense that they would want to study that. And then he's going to tell us not only what they found, but uh, they've got some really cool tools at Consumer Reports for free uh, that we'll talk about that can help you with your security and privacy. It was really a great conversation. So you definitely want to tune in for that. Subscribe now if you haven't already to make sure you don't miss it. And then you will also not miss the huge 200th episode. I can't believe I'm coming up on 200 podcast episodes, 200 weeks. And coming back, just we had him for the pod centennial. He's hopefully this will now be a pattern. He's coming back for the 200th episode as well. My guest will be none other than world-renowned crypto guru Bruce Schneier. Uh, he literally wrote the book on cryptography. Uh, I've got a signed copy of it sitting on my bookshelf. I'm very proud to have that. Uh, but he's wrote a whole bunch of other books too, and much much less technical. Uh, really good. Uh, you might, for instance, check out Data and Goliath, one of my favorites that he's written. 
but he's really a lot of fun to talk to. And he's, uh, along with Tim Berners-Lee, who is regarded to be the father of the internet, basically, started a new company called Interrupt, and they have a new idea for how to manage your data and how people can actually own their data and only give it to the people they want to and be able to revoke it at any time. It's I can't wait to ask them all about that. Uh, and that will be on the 200th episode. Now, along with this episode, like I did last uh, last time for the Pod Centennial, and this is, I guess, my bi-Pod Centennial, something like that, I will be doing, uh, giving away a bunch of stuff. Uh, the exact list of things I'm giving away is still uh, being worked out, but uh, stay tuned for details. I think what I'll probably do is send out a special little short podcast blurb. So again, if you've subscribed, you will get that automatically uh, sometime in this next week. And with all the details on how to uh, how to enter, it'll probably be through Rafflecopter again. And therefore, there will probably be many ways for you to actually submit an entry. And this time, it's not going to just be signed copies of my book. Hopefully, it will be signed copies from other people. Maybe I'll manage to get some from Bruce. Maybe from Cory Doctorow. We'll see. I'm working on that. Also, considering maybe giving away, I just talked about the pie hole. And, uh, you know, I know that a lot of people will be kind of intimidated by uh, trying to put together something like that. I've been thinking about maybe buying buying the setup and having one pre-built and pre-configured and giving one of those away, too. If you've got any interesting ideas of things you you might like to have as part of a giveaway for this podcast, you can just shoot me an email at feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. I would love to hear your ideas. And I've also decided to uh, start a new tradition, I think, for the episode right before the 200th, uh, in this case because it's the Christmas one. You know, people are busy around Christmas, including myself, and so I think what I'll rather do is, and what a lot of podcasts do, is I'm going to do a Greatest Hits uh, episode where I go through and cull through uh, the shows from the last year, from 2020, and I think this year what I'll probably do is pull out uh, the best, like maybe my top 10 best uh, tips of the week and put those all into a single massive episode. Along the way, maybe I could sneak in some sound snippets from some of my favorite interviews as well. Uh, we'll see how much time I have. But uh, definitely we'll be putting together Greatest Hits. That will be the week, uh, that'll be the Monday right before Christmas. Again, uh, if you subscribe, you won't miss that. And I think I'll try to do that every year uh, around that time. All right, one more thing I'm going to throw out and then I'll let you go. As I've been saying, I really, really need to get some more reviews on the book on Amazon, but I also want to get some more on iTunes. So I'm going to do a ratings blitz. And here's what I'm thinking. I'm going to set a goal for how many reviews I want to get between now and let's say Christmas. And while on iTunes and Amazon, it's against their terms of service to offer any sort of compensation, even if it's a negative review, I can't, I can't in any way pay you for that or put you even in a raffle. But I think what I can do and what I'm going to do is I am going to host a private AMA, which uh, stands for Ask Me Anything, uh, for anybody who posts a review. So as part of the 200th episode, I will probably also be announcing this uh, and the winners for the AMA. And and basically what that means is if you submit a review and I will take one either on iTunes or on Amazon between now and Christmas Day, and you... To prove that you did it, just uh, shoot me an email at feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and either send me a little uh, screenshot of, of the review you posted or maybe just copy and paste the text. And then I will use that email address to notify you when I will be hosting my private Ask Me Anything session. And that will be a little webinar where everybody invited will be able to come in probably for an hour or so and you can ask me any question you want. It could be about security, it could be about privacy, it could be about how you do something my opinion on something, whatever you want. That's why they call it Ask Me Anything. So we're going to try that out and see how that goes. But but I really, really need to get some more reviews. And so I am calling on you to help me out 
And if, uh, if I get to those, if I get to those goals and, and we pass those goals beforehand, then I'll think of something even better, but let's shoot for just 20 reviews, 20 more on Amazon and 20 more on iTunes. I'll be reminding you over the coming weeks that you can start today. The other thing I'm going to do is I find these reviews as they get posted, I am going to read them on the air. Uh, so let's start with the, the, there was two reviews currently on the book. Thank you for those that did it. Uh, one of those two reviews actually had text. Uh, and it was from Gordon. It was five out of five stars. Thank you, Gordon. And he titled it Computer Security Made Understandable with Practical Steps to Take. And this is this is what he said. Gordon said, this pragmatic book makes the technical information about computer security very readable. Organized by topic, each chapter ends with a clear, detailed step-by-step instructions on that topic. It makes securing your devices, networks, accounts, and internet browsing habits very straightforward. Thank you again, Gordon. That was a wonderful review. Uh, I also may be picking out some of my favorite reviews uh, from the past on the previous editions, uh, and I'll pick one here now. And this one is from Beth Ellen Watermelon. Uh, that's her username. Uh, again, five out of five stars. And this was on the third edition, but they're similar enough that it, it will apply. Uh, she calls it a page turner. This book is such an easy read with so much information, such clear instructions with examples. I usually stick to fiction, so I was not too excited to pick up what I thought would be a dry technical textbook. But it moves fast, you learn a lot. It's well organized, and you definitely can ramp up your security and privacy practices, even if you are already in the know. Let me add, his is going to be my security Bible. It is such a resource. I'm sure I'll pick up on something new every time I pick it up. Thank you again, Beth Ellen Watermelon, whoever you may be. And I will keep reading whatever gets posted between now and Christmas. So, post that review. Send me an email at feedback at firewalls don't stop dragons with a little screenshot of you doing it or just copy and paste the text. And then I will reach out to you when the time comes for the AMA, probably somewhere in January. So I'm really hoping you can help me out here. Let's see if we can get to 20 reviews each on Amazon and iTunes. And if we, again, if we beat those goals by some miracle, I'll offer something even better. All right, everybody. That is it. That has been a long episode. Thank you for hanging in there with me. We've got a great interview next week, and we've got some great stuff coming up, so be sure to subscribe. And until next week, please stay safe, stay home, and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>